This episode of She Does is supported by Vermont College of Fine Arts MFA in Film. The program offers a two-year student-designed, project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction, and nonfiction filmmaking, and hybrid and transmedia projects. It's exciting, affordable, and intense. Refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories in an independent practice. Visit vcfa.edu film to find out more. always hated the term gatekeeper or tastemaker or anything like that. I just, I don't, I always think the filmmakers drive everything. And I think there's this weird misconception about that. I mean, we are always at the mercy of the filmmakers. Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And today, we would like you to meet Charlotte Cook, documentary film programmer and curator. The music you'll hear in this episode is by Alexandria Hall of Toothache. Tune in next week to meet her. Our guest today may be best known as the director of programming at Toronto's popular film festival, Hot Docs, a position she held for four years. But after four record-breaking festivals, Charlotte left her post at Hot Docs in May of 2015 to start Field of Vision, a visual journalism film unit that aims to commission 40 to 50 original episodic and individual short-form nonfiction films each year. Charlotte co-founded Field of Vision with Academy Award-winning director of Citizen Four, Laura Poitras, and filmmaker and founder of Cinema Eye Honors, A.J. Schnock. They launched the film unit publicly in September of 2015. So far, they've put out 12 films from around the globe, covering topics such as the refugee crisis, U.S. military surveillance, LGBT rights, among many others. We will talk about Field of Vision today, because we know so many of you are jazzed about it, and so are we. But first, it's good to note that Charlotte has a wealth of experiences she brings to the intersection of documentary film production and curation. And that includes years of programming cinema at the Frontline Club in London and at Hot Docs. Programmers are responsible for watching thousands of films, rating them, and then curating and organizing the film schedule and program to fit the audience's tastes, wants, and needs at a particular film festival, gallery, or cinema. There is no path to becoming a programmer. I mean, even every programmer I've ever worked with has come through from very, very different ways, but it's all based on passion more than anything. And also watch a ton, like you have to. And the thing that always strikes me is when programmers don't think about audience, I mean, there are very few, very few. It's more, you know, when you're training new people, when they don't think, they think it's about their taste. Um, and it's so far from about your taste. Um, and that's what I think filmmakers also, they're always like, what do you like and what do you don't like? It's like, it's not, it, that is so far. I mean, we all have our Achilles heels and our sweet spots. Um, and I certainly do. But it's really about learning about audiences and what people respond to. I think that's really, you're looking at, your job is to look on behalf of the audience. It's a skill and you have to train yourself into doing that. You have to watch things in a different way. Because there is this weird belief that everybody can program, but it's, one, it's a very strange thing to do with your time. <laughs> like to watch on that volume um, is a weird thing to do with your life, um, especially at a festival level because you give up seven months of your life. But also, you know, it is a skill to be able to see how a film, especially when you're watching rough cuts, which you largely are, you're watching them with no, like, not good sound, half the time they're gonna change it. You have to know what the film's gonna become and that is a skill. Charlotte was born in Germany, the only child of a military father and a teacher mother. I'm a military brat. Which means they moved around a lot. And then we settled near Stonehenge, which is southwest England, um, in very rural 
out of the right place. Um, and I stayed there till I went to college. Like the famous Stonehenge? Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Is that like your place? No. <laughs> I mean, every school trip was Stonehenge for really? sure. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's like a 4,000 year old town. Yeah, a lot of history when I was growing up, which I hated and I hated living there. It was very remote, but I love it now. It's really beautiful. I worked in a record store and a, a movie theater when I was a teenager um, because I was, I mean, I was film obsessed from a very early age um, and always wanted to do it, but my parents were very actively against it because I naturally, um, my natural abilities with computing. And so they really thought that that was going to happen. I had a Microsoft scholarship when I was 17 and I was kind of, yeah, I was one of those kids. Um, I met one of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, awesome. I taught myself how to code when I was like 14 and stuff. So, really? Yeah, they really were like pushing wow. that. So I did a science degree, which was technology for the media. So that was like the balance we came up with. Um, and at that point in my life, from I think from the moment, it, I mean, I know exactly when it happened. The moment I saw Panic Room, I decided I wanted to be an open titles designer. And like that followed through until grad school. Um, and I did a year of screen design because that's what I wanted to do. And then I realized the design world wasn't really for me. Um, it's a very competitive, oddly performance-based, which doesn't fit my character. And so I had a bit of a crisis of faith at that point and then found documentary and I did a master's in documentary instead. After receiving her master's in documentary from Royal Holloway, University of London, Charlotte started getting more into politics, current affairs, and journalism. She did some documentary internships and got bit by the nonfiction bug. She became an archive researcher and senior picture researcher at The Times, a daily national newspaper published in the UK. They were launching the Times Online Archive, and I was given the task of, like, here's 80 subtopics we've covered in the history of The Times in the UK. Find photos, which was one of the best. It was like doing a history degree. Um, and then at the same time I was doing that, I was working in production. I was working on very, very heavy, heavy current affairs. We did a lot of films about terrorism and suicide bombing and the history of car bombs and all that kind of stuff, which warped my brain in a way I can't even describe. I mean, I would have dreams about people blowing themselves up all the time. A year later, in 2008, Charlotte went to BBC Storyville, initially as an intern. Um, and somehow got a job that I was way underqualified for. Why do you um, think you're underqualified? I just, I mean, they were looking for someone, it was like a kind of, not managerial level, but it was really looking after the submissions process, which is really important, obviously, to them, and also the delivery, so it was the beginning and the end. And I just hadn't had enough experience, and I remember being interviewed for it, and Nick Fraser kind of came out and said, you're a Storyville person, and that's why we want you, and I thought, oh my God. <laughs> and he was like, now you've got to make this happen. And so my job was getting, you know, the initial stages of dealing with filmmakers and then getting the film on screen, which was amazing, like seeing that stuff. Um, and they'd just finished doing Man on Wire at that point, And it was just an amazing time to be there and seeing the commissioning process. From BBC Storyville, she went on to the Frontline Club in London. The Frontline Club is a media club with a strong emphasis on conflict reporting. They opened in 2003 and championed independent journalism and encouraged freedom of the press and expression worldwide. The guy who founded it, Vaughan Smith, was a freelance cameraman during Kosovo and that kind of era. And he ran a freelance news agency for cameramen and most of them were killed during the conflict. And so in their honor, he founded the Frontline Club as a place which is a home for foreign correspondents and photographers so that they have some, a base when they're traveling because it's very hard to do that. The Frontline Club has an event space, hotel rooms, and a restaurant. They have hosted over 1,200 events. And Charlotte joined them as the head of documentary film programming. She would stay there for two years. 
At that point, what they'd screened before were largely current affairs TV and that kind of thing, the stuff they would be making. And I came in with very much the feature idea because there wasn't much in London going on for documentary at that point. Um, so it was educating a very, very smart, educated audience about different ways of making films and they responded incredibly well. We would have filmmakers in the audience, like Dan Fung Dennis used to come all the time when he was still a photographer before he made Helen Back Again and would watch films and like that level of discourse with film, like Tim Hetherington was, a, was there all the time and was really fantastic before he made Restrepo. Um, so it was amazing talking to these journalists who were really interested in making longer form films because it's actually very difficult for them because they usually called out to stories. Tim Hetherington was a prolific British photojournalist who produced books, films and multi-screen installations and exhibitions. The documentary he shot, Restrepo, won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2011. But on April 20th of 2011, Tim was killed while covering the Libyan Civil War. Other folks that came through the Frontline Club door were filmmakers and journalists from the current affairs TV program called World in Action, which ran from the 1960s to the 1990s. ...by the special branch to infiltrate the National Front and get them all the confidential documents and information I could find. I am now a trusted officer in the party. If I get caught, there are fellow members who would have me killed for my treachery. This is the sworn statement of a police spy still operating undercover inside Britain's largest extreme right-wing political party, the National Front. My National Front colleagues are violent people, many armed with knives and chains. And all of those guys who worked on it come to Frontline and go to screenings, so they're very involved. So you have this like legacy who come to screenings and talk about their experience. When you actually got down to it with those guys, I mean, Dear Pennybaker used to shoot for them, yes, the Maisels did too. Um, the Up series came out of that series, that was one of theirs. Uh, Paul Greengrass ran the series, he went in as an intern and ended up running it. And like the legacy they created was something that stuck with me forever and has since. I mean, we talk about it now with the new project is inspired by that series too, because they were all in their 20s and the idea of the stuff that they did was amazing. My last year that I was there, um, I was doing a screening one Sunday and I was kind of called in being like, we've got this press conference tomorrow. Um, we're not really sure like what this is about, but um, it's this thing called WikiLeaks. And I was like, what? I had seen the collateral murder video and was like, uh, they're coming? And they were like, yeah, they're coming. Can you come and do the tech for the event? And I was like, okay. Um, and actually they were prepping the Afghan war logs in the bar while we were doing a screening upstairs, which was insane. Um, and that was the first time I met Julian Assange. And oh, the last time I ever saw him being able to walk in and out of a building really easily. And um, so the next day I came into work and, the and we did the press conference and then they kind of stayed with us. They, they used us as a base for about a year after that. So, you know, seeing that happen and him, you know, become as famous as he did. In addition to meeting Julian Assange at Frontline Club, Charlotte also met Laura Poitras, who she would eventually start Field of Vision with. Laura Poitras is a filmmaker, journalist, and artist. Her film, Citizen Four, featuring whistleblower Edward Snowden, won an Academy Award for Best Documentary. It was the third installment of her post-9-11 trilogy. Part one of the trilogy, My Country, My Country, was about the U.S. occupation of Iraq. And part two, The Oath, focused on Guantanamo and the war on terror. She just brings a sensitivity to subject matter and difficult subject matters. She brings this like very, very human connection with any character that lets you make your own judgment. And I always respect that when somebody's allowing you into somebody's life and you get to decide. 
In 2011, Charlotte left the Frontline Club to become director of programming at Hot Docs, North America's largest documentary film festival, conference, and market held annually in Toronto. Charlotte was in charge of creating the vision for the festival each year, leading a team of experienced programmers who, with her guidance, handpicked exceptional films to be presented at the festival in April. During the four years that Charlotte was at Hot Docs, submissions for the festival increased to over 2,500 on average every year, which meant every year she personally watched 1,000 films. The festival continues to grow, and in 2015, they reached record attendance of 200,500. Watching films in volume drove Charlotte to invent her own process. That meant no laptop or computer viewings, and finding ways to avoid distraction. So I've always like had a big screen, and I got it. I mean, filmmakers will hate me saying this, um, but this is why people like oh, when they're on planes, they love watching films because you are completely immersed and you can't do anything else. But when you're at home, it's very easy to get distracted. And I never wanted to do that. I mean, I always was if I found I got distracted, I'd rewind and go back because I'm very, very ethical about this stuff. That I took up knitting, and I know this is insane, but it was never my thing. Like that was not who I was. But I needed to do something with my hands to keep focused. And filmmakers, when I say that, they're like, oh my god, but that's so distracting, it's actually completely the other way around. And I also used to have a rowing machine, um, which I used to do while I was screening, which again, filmmakers are like, but you're moving. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm actually strapped in and I have headphones on, so I'm much more likely to concentrate. Because otherwise you get up, you go make tea, or, you know. And there's so. nothing and there's nothing with those two things that you need to look at. Exactly. That's it, yeah. It's, just it's finding those movement. things where you actually can stay focused, yeah. Yeah. How many scarves do you have? <laughs> Loads. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you could have like a side business. Yeah, because you can't do anything complicated. It has to be something very, it's like a, a straight thing. It yeah. could be like an entire installation, like I knit this while watching. Oh, totally. <laughs> are, they, yeah, yeah. are the scarves influenced by the colors in the film? No, no. <laughs> Never know. That would be kind of smart though. I mean, you have to find these things, especially when you're watching volume. You can't just sit mm. there. How many do you watch? Can you give yeah. us a sense of like what it's like? Like especially, let's go yeah. to hot dogs. Let's sure. like start there. So between, so hot dogs would always start right after tiff that's when we would start screening and so from that's from this time of year until we'd stop screening at the end of february and i would watch around a thousand films in that point so yeah. for our listeners we're in mid-september yeah so that's september october november december january it's five months five months yeah five months a thousand films yeah yeah are you taking notes I don't at the time because, again, I just like to watch stuff. Um, I tend to remember. I mean, I started the last two years I, that I was at Hot Dogs. I did take notes afterwards. But you can generally remember. I know that sounds, I can never remember, like, the title of the film. But if I know what the film is, I can remember what I think about it. But I did start the last, the last couple of years. I did start taking notes just because it was, yeah, it's tiring. And when you're tired, you want to remember what you thought. It's interesting because I, I do watch a lot of fiction too, but that there are so many filters placed on that. So by the time I've watched fiction, it's gone through a whole load of filters. And I recently, a friend of mine pro was programming for another festival and was staying in my house, and I watched fiction as submissions. And that is painful. That's really painful because documentaries, you can largely fix editing or you can reshoot or you can find a different angle. Or, you know, there's so many more. You c it's hard to have a film where there's no hope. Whereas in fiction, if an actor screws up or the costume design's off or something, one piece can throw an entire film off. And so watching badly made fiction is way more heartbreaking than documentary. What are the things you love and the things you look for? I never really looked for anything. I mean, I would always refuse. It used to drive me crazy when filmmakers would insist on showing me trailers and stuff because I always wanted to go in with, like, I never knew what I was watching. Often what filmmakers feel like the film's about isn't necessarily what the film's about or the way it comes across, and often they can do a disservice to themselves. Um, so I would always try and go in as blind as possible. Like, I don't want to, I mean, it's irrelevant to me what the film is about. 
I, it's just about the quality of the film and how they're telling the story. I mean, you can't program being interested in particular things unless you program it like a niche festival. I wasn't really looking in terms of subject matter. It was how the story was told and what I thought the audience would take from it. I've always hated the term gatekeeper or tastemaker or anything like that. I just, I don't, I always think the filmmakers drive everything. And I think there's this weird misconception about that. I mean, we are always at the mercy of the filmmakers. And that was something I really always tried to get through at Hot Dogs, which was like, you know, it's not your honor to screen with us, it's the other way around. Um, we are lucky that you have said yes to this. We always had themed programs that were based on what filmmakers think, because you'd see filmmakers thinking about things every year. So there'd be different modes of telling stories or different subject matters, and you would see that come through. And so we would build theme programs around that rather than saying, we're going to look at this this year. It was like, no, let's let the filmmakers dictate what those programs are. Um, and I think that is important that we are representing filmmakers in that way. I think many people listening will be really inspired by what you just said, because <laughs> I think there's an intimidation and there's a level of like comparing yourselves to others with film without mm -hmm. f with forgetting that what you're bringing to film is affected by your own personal experience and yeah. your view of the world. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's tough because obviously, you know, as a programmer, you have a say, you have a say, but you know, that was always really hard. I mean, when we when we sent out rejections and you realize that every single film is like two or three years, if not more, of somebody's life and you're saying no to it, that's incredibly difficult thing to do. And, you know, we get two and a half thousand submissions and take 200 of those. So you're turning down 2,300 films every year, which is really, really difficult because you know that every single film means the world to that filmmaker. Um, so there's a huge responsibility in that. And so it has to be driven by them. Absolutely. It's not about what I think. Are there any filmmakers that are um, either here or sort of in the circuit right now that you're really excited about and films you're excited about? Um, there's one this year particularly, um, Above and Below. We showed at Hot Dogs um, by Nicholas Steiner and that's like his thesis film. And when I realize, like when you realize that, it's just mind blowing. Um, because it's so beautiful and you can tell he's playing around with the craft and he's figuring stuff out. So what he is going to do really excites me and he's really interesting. I mean, the Ross Brothers, I'm always like, I, I will support them making work just because I want to see it. It's that simple. Um, they make work that really speaks to me. Um, so I, yeah, I'd always want to see their stuff. Why do you think that is? I like the fact that they, they give you sense of place. They take you into an experience that you probably would never have yourself and you really feel like you've got a sense of that experience and they do it. I mean, just the way that they are, they just have such love and care in everything that they do. Um, and the idea of like, they like adventure and they like bringing you into different aspects of life. I think that's really important. And it also harks back to an, an older sense of storytelling and documentary. I mean, there is this belief, this kind of new cinematic nonfiction. It's not new, it's actually how it used to be. Um, I mean, if you look at their work and compare it with like Les Blanc, that's exactly what he was doing. Um, and I think that's the work I fell in love with. So seeing contemporary filmmakers take that on is really exciting. Do you recognize movements that are happening now that, that maybe other people don't, but you can, because you've seen such a huge body of work, you kind of see things as more of a movement? I think it always depends on the money. Like, that's the kind of sad thing, is filmmakers are like, 
especially because I, I always look around the world because I'm always much more interested. I mean, I, of course, I'm interested in what happens in North America and Europe, but I'm also interested in other countries and how they're doing. But um, money dictates a huge factor of, you know, what is getting funded. A lot of the time, filmmakers have to respond to that. So it's trying to find that work that isn't being funded. Traditionally, you tend to see what filmmakers are trying to do. And I'm not sure there is any kind of particular movement. Um, I think filmmakers like playing. They like trying to find different ways to tell stories. And so... That's what's really interesting to me is those advances because I think documentary because they have no money and because they're having to wing it half the time um, in terms of like what can I do in this time frame with the amount of money to so that I can survive they are the most creative and innovative of any like cinematic art form and that's what I find really fascinating is like what are they trying to make happen you know this is their angle and this is how they've built it to make that happen um, so I think technology creates movements I think money creates movements in that way because they're just responding to the parameters they have or lack thereof exactly yeah exactly. <laughs> Nothing ever comes out right Not even the moon Nothing ever comes out right Charlotte says since programming at Hot Docs, she has become oddly maternal towards filmmakers and their body of work. I like supporting things that I love and I think I mean we've all had this that when things like TV shows we have cancel or films don't get out into the world and like I've become that seems to be my driving force now is like supporting things I love so they still exist it's so hard for filmmakers to figure you know we're expecting them to be masters of their craft and then also know the industry and know how to get their film out into the world and be their own distributors half the time their own publicists and you know asking that is so much and some people just get it and they know how to do it but a lot of people don't a lot of the more artistic filmmakers certainly don't know how to do that um and it, again it's like you know supporting what you love just seeing filmmakers make mistakes or hearing about their past mistakes and trying to make sure that that never happened for them again or you know be able I, I was in a very fortunate position of I could connect them with the right people or give them advice or that kind of stuff that I just wanted to do that and I, f I feel a programmer's role is that you know they are giving you the responsibility of their work and their life and if you can help you should help and it is difficult because obviously every year you're dealing with another 200 filmmakers um, but it's more a case of like if you can you should there's a lot of responsibility that comes with this maternal role and sometimes things don't go as planned. And then there are other forces at work. Sales agents, distributors, press, the importance of a premiere status. It can all get really messy. Filmmakers can really trust you. And if they go by completely your advice and it goes wrong, that's the worst thing imaginable. Um, so I was always very careful being like, here are your pros and cons and this is the decision you have to make. But I'm not going to. And we did that with premiere status too. I mean, that was always the tough thing because premiere status is the bane of every program of life. Um, and the one myth in the industry is that we drive that, and it's just not true. It's the press and, and it's the industry, especially sales agents, um, because they will choose the festivals they go to based on what is available um, and what is new. And especially the press, there are most trade trade magazines or you know websites will only cover world premieres so you have a responsibility as a programmer or a, pro or a festival director to get a certain amount of press because your filmmakers need that and it elevates your festival but if you don't have enough world premieres then you don't even get the film sometimes because you don't have the status it's this horrible thing this horrible thing um and so talking to filmmakers a lot about that kind of thing i mean we would always do it in the way that i would invite the film first and then say i don't think you should play that festival before us but if you do you're still invited like that's this is not a you're in or you're out situation but these are my reasons why and if you still do it you're in and it's you know no harm done but 
And I started in the last two years of Hot Ducks doing phone calls with every world premiere filmmaker that we had just to make sure. Um, and also out of curiosity, more than anything, just saying, like, what do you want to happen at Hot Ducks? Because like, we hadn't done that before. He's like, what are your expectations? And it, it was so eye-opening because it went from, I just want five people to show up to I want to win an Oscar. And there was very little in between. And that was what was really surprising to me. I was like, you haven't thought about an international sales agent or you haven't thought about a distributor. It was very much like, I just want people to show up or I am going to make the biggest film of the year. For people that are listening, do you know of any online resources or like things that have that are that are available to them where they can learn more about this? I think every film is different. So there isn't kind of a playbook for this is, I mean, I've had people say to me, you know, what would be your top five distributors? And it doesn't work like that because timing is, is everything the type of film, the way you've made it. I mean, my thing is always know what your film is, like know the film that you have and then look at other films that you think are similar or you would hope to have the trajectory of the success you have and look at what they did and then call those filmmakers because they will tell you who the good and guy bad guys are. And it's not really us because obviously we know everybody in that way, but the filmmakers will have the best advice imaginable. They will say, no, that distributor treated us badly or didn't know how to handle, how to handle that kind of film or that festival is good for that reason. Like, and filmmakers are so good. They want to help other filmmakers. They know how hard it is. And it's surprising how filmmakers don't do that with each other. Field of Vision is a new visual journalism unit in collaboration with The Intercept. The adversarial journalism website Laura Poitras co-founded with journalists Jeremy Scahill and Glenn Greenwald. Field of Vision produces cinematic short and episodic work that provides a new and different perspective on topical stories. Most importantly, it's a filmmaker-driven unit where directors retain copyright and are trusted to tell the story the best way they see fit. This means each piece of work ranges in style, length, and form. Let's all sing this, Peace in the Valley. Well, the bear will be gentle. Peace in the Valley by Michael Palmieri and Donald Mosier is a 15-minute film about Eureka Springs, Arkansas, home to both the largest outdoor passion play in the U.S. and an important vote on LGBT rights. The film is showing this year at Sundance, and it's incredible. It's one of my favorites. Walk us through, like, how someone listening may pitch, like at what stage do they need to be in and like what topics are you really looking to explore and those types of things, how you can support them. I mean, we're looking for different things and it's been interesting seeing how people have responded. Um, because a lot of it's going to be driven by us. I mean, we do want to know if people are interested in doing that. Um, and we're doing a lot of assignments. So if people are open to doing that, we want to know about that. Um, so if they're not driven by a subject, they think, I'd be, you know, I want to go and do something for you guys. Or if they do have a subject, um, that would be really great. And they, I mean, it's very difficult for filmmakers because they're so trained into thinking feature. So I think it's going to take time to figure that out. And obviously we're doing episodic two, which is an interesting way of telling stories. So I think it's just a case of, you know, this is a subject I'm interested in. This is how my, perhaps my take on it would be really interesting to us. Every filmmaker I've ever spoken to has always had these other stories. They didn't feel felt into a feature and that they kind of never gave up on. And those are the ones I'm like, give us those. It's not just filmmakers. I mean, we are we want editors and cinematographers because we've done some really amazing pairings between artists who aren't traditional filmmakers who need that person who maybe is a cinematographer. So they still are directing, but they have like a kind of producer-driven cinematographer, and that's really interesting. So we're hoping those people also get in touch.
Another favorite of ours is Notes from the Border by filmmaker Eva Radivojevich, who is known for experimenting with more poetic and less traditional modes of documentary. The nine-minute film documents the refugee crisis on the borders of Europe during the summer of 2015, told through the tale of one man's journey to the continent. <laughs> How is technology having an impact on the experiences we have? And like, how do you think about that as a curator? I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I've always been obsessed with audiences, um, especially when I was at Frontline, I used to stand in the back and also because I was trying to challenge a particular audience, like to see what people respond to and what they choose. I'm fascinated by that. Um, and as a curator, it's really fun to play with that and see what people do. But I think that's why I was interested in moving maybe into a different space because it has evolved. Um, and especially different audiences, especially a younger audience, um, educated audiences are really looking for content online. And I actually think, I mean, I think actually it's not young and educated, it's everybody. Um, that is how people are, are trying to find stories. Um, so that was really interesting to me. And also, I mean, the way Laura speaks about it is, is really great in that when she, you know, she's done Updocs for a long time. And she found, especially with her William Binney piece, which is the one that caused Edward Snowden to contact her, she felt that she, even though she was making the film, she wanted to get the story out because Binney's health wasn't great. And she felt his story had to be told while he was alive. And she loved the fact that the short form helped let her play. Because, you know, the, there wasn't as much of a gamble because it's, you're not committing three years to your life. So if you do try a different cinematic technique or you try a different way of storytelling, it's much more freeing. Um, and I, that space is what I'm really excited about. And I hope filmmakers use us for that. I really do. This job's difficult in that I, like, I love programming so much and I kept being like, I've given that up. And I said, but I haven't. It's just a different way of doing things. Like I am always, it's at my core to be like, I must get this film out there or I must get this filmmaker work or, you know, I want to see what they're doing. That I think it's just finding different ways to do that. like a young Charlotte listening who wants to be a programmer what would you say like how can she or he get involved and she's a young Charlotte what can <laughs> a baby Charlotte um what can they do I've thought about this a lot because there are so few British programmers the two film festivals main ones where you can plan to play documentaries right now which is Sheffield and London aren't programmed by Brits as the head programmer so I think about that a lot and there are British programmers obviously but they don't hold those kind of the higher roles and I don't know I mean the UK it's incredibly hard right now and I, th I came through at such a weird back door there is again like there's audiences out there desperate to see stuff and I think it's probably easier than ever to curate online or and write about stuff and um, write about what you love and I think I mean I certainly did that for years I wrote for the documentary blog um, and my rule was that was like I will write for this for free if I never have to slam a film like, I'm never going to give a critical review. And that was always like, you know, with Jay, the guy who runs it, he was like, that's not ethical. You know, you're supposed to be a critic. And I was like, I never came on board as a critic. Like, I want to champion stuff I love, and that's what I'm going to do. So if I see them, I'm like, I'm not going to write about it. And it was a case of 
just finding a voice and putting work out there. And I think anybody could do that now. I think there are so many venues and cinemas around that if you said, I will take on once a month, let me do this. Um, we'll do like a share and not doing it necessarily to make money, but just to get work out there. I think that would be fairly easy to do if you were prepared to put the time in. One thing I would recommend if someone did want to be a programmer, I was very fortunate when I interned for Storyville, they would say to me like, we don't want to give you, we, we don't want you bothering us all the time saying like, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need? There are 300 films over there. Just watch them when you have nothing to do. And I did that, but I also watched a lot of teasers and rough cuts of the films that I would then watch the finished version of. So I could, t I learned, like, I kind of taught myself to be like, oh, well, that's what that will become or that's what they saw in it. And I would see the notes and I trained myself kind of that way, um, which I don't think would be difficult to, to, for somebody else to learn how to do. Especially Exactly, yeah. I mean, there are, like, every Kickstarter video you can imagine is still probably up there. That You can watch the film you love and then go and watch the teaser and see like, oh, that's what it was in its genesis and that's what it became. Do you have any fears? Are you scared of anything in your field? Um, I always get scared that the social issue, like dominance, takes over. Um, I think there's a huge place for it. I think documentary is one of the most powerful mediums in the world um, to get messages through. And I do like I I like those films a lot, but I also am a huge advocate of the more artistic film. Um, a filmmaker's really playing with like perception of reality, like I love that stuff. Um, I like people messing with my perception of reality um, and I like the craft itself and I think as long as both of those have a place I'm okay, it's just often funding can dictate and you lose different types of filmmaking and I hope that there's just always a place for every type of filmmaking. You have to be careful because you're essentially using a cinematic language or a language in the first place to try and create change. And that's okay, that's totally fine, but you have to respect the language and you have to, it's a craft and so you have to learn the craft and it's when people aren't prepared to do that and just want to use the craft that I think is really problematic. So you see lots of very terrible films that are just banging a drum and often you're just preaching to the converted in those audiences and nothing is ever going to happen. It's actually when you are a skilled storyteller, you probably can get through to people you wouldn't normally get through to and like change cultural discourse. And I think that's so there is, you know, we should be using the tool for that, but it is a tool and an art form and you have to respect that before you make a story or use it for that reason. Thank you so much to Charlotte Cook for taking us into the world of programming. And if you want to pitch to Field of Vision, visit their website, theintercept.com slash staff for all the contact info. You can also visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, for links and more information about Charlotte and some of the films that we mentioned today. This show is a product of Slate's Panoply Network, and this episode was produced by us, Elaine Sheldon and Sarah Ginsberg. And sound design is by Billy Raraznik. Thank you to Camden International Film Festival, who hosted this talk in a barn. It's one of our favorite film festivals and is held every September in Maine. The music you heard in this episode is by Alexandria Hall of Toothache. Tune in next week to meet her and find out what she's all about. Thank you to our partner, Filmmaker Magazine, and our friends over Independent Music News. In December, we partnered with Independent Music News to release a compilation album. It's called She Music, and it features many of the musicians that soundtracked our episodes over the past year. It costs less than $5, and all proceeds go to Girls Rock Camp Alliance. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com slash music, to hear and buy it. 
Thank you for listening to She Does.